Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we had some big Supreme Court news as we found out Wednesday that Justice Stephen Breyer will be retiring after 27 years, giving President Biden a chance to nominate a new judge. He has already pledged to nominate the first black woman to the court. Conservative judges will still control the majority, but it could provide Democrats some much-needed enthusiasm before the midterms. For more on some possible frontrunners for the job, we'll speak to Sam Baker, senior editor at Axios. Democrats have been in a, a uh, pretty punishing political environment here where the debate has sort of centered around uh, inflation, COVID, whether schools are open. You know, it's been shaping up to be pretty rough. A Supreme Court fight always changes the dynamic, and especially this one is going to come right as the court is poised to, in the summer, probably significantly scale back, if not outright reverse Roe v. Wade. So Democrats, you know, are kind of feeling like they do feel like the public is with them on the issue of abortion. uh, And it's also one that sort of rallies their base and gives them something to sort of play offense on. What did we see out of Stephen Breyer from his tenure on the court? Uh, Obviously, he was on the moderate to liberal side of things, you know, politically. You made mention in the article you wrote up that, you know, he was a a real big user of hypotheticals when uh, he was listening to oral arguments. So what did we see out of his tenure there? You know, he's not a justice who will probably go down in history for anything in particular that he wrote. Because he was on the liberal side, he was not very often in the majority on big cases. He didn't get to write many of those opinions. Uh, And he wasn't, you know, one of these Scalia-like figures who wrote these big winding dissents either. He kept things pretty narrow, pretty focused uh, on the on the facts, not necessarily someone who who laid out a big sweeping view of the law, but very much a character on the bench. As he said, he's sort of famous for very long winding questions. And, you know, his retirement will also be part of his legacy. Yeah, to your point about, uh, you know, keeping those, you know, his views pretty narrow on everything, you know, he said. Interpreting the Constitution should be based on this kind of practical consideration that changes over time in contrast to conservative members who a lot of them believe, you know, you have to put yourself in the original intent of the founders. So, you know, just uh, looking at that, the Constitution differently, you know, everybody right away, you announce a retirement, the, the race is on to nominate somebody, get them confirmed as quickly as possible. President Biden, I'm sure, and his team are getting together the list of nominees. Uh, we do have two front runners already. They want to push this through before the next term starts, which would be October 3rd, right before the elections, too. So speed is of the utmost importance here. But we do have two frontrunners so far. What are we hearing on that front? With the caveat, it's all very early and, and, you know. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) The the, the list of names will grow and shrink and change and people will come on and off. Ever since President Biden made that promise during the presidential campaign that he would use his first Supreme Court appointment to appoint the first black female justice in the court's history, people have really been focusing in on two judges. One is Katani Brown-Jackson, maybe the better known of the two. Uh, She's a judge right now on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, a very, very powerful appellate court, sometimes called the second most court in the land. Uh, And the other is... Leandra Kruger, 
who had sort of all of all of the makings earlier on, worked in the Justice Department and the Obama administration, was a very accomplished litigator, argued, I think, a dozen cases for the Supreme Court and is now a justice on the California State Supreme Court. With Kintanji Brown-Jackson, there could be some conservative objections to her. I guess she was involved in a couple of rulings that had to deal with former President Trump and some of his legal battles. That's right. Just based on on her position, uh, first as a, as a trial judge here in D.C., and then her position on the, the D.C. circuit, some of those things have come before her. She wrote a, a very um, strongly worded opinion about some of the Trump administration's claims to executive privilege, and also was part of a panel that uh, recently ruled that Trump had to turn documents over to the uh, the January 6th commission. However, I will say one of the big marks in her favor, I think, in terms of getting this nomination, is that she was confirmed to the job she has now right. with 53 votes in the Senate about six months ago. It was last summer. So some conservative opposition, yes, but you know, if you're Chuck Schumer trying to figure out if people will support X or Y nominee if they just supported her less than a year ago. Right. What, what gives could, you a pretty good place to start from? Yeah. What could have changed in, in just that amount of time? And they had three Republican votes with them too. So who knows if those will carry over. And, and then for Leandra Cougar, she's been known to be a little bit more of a moderate, at least working with uh, conservatives. Uh, so, uh, I mean, that could work in her favor as well. Yeah. You know, it, we will learn more about these two candidates and, and others as people sort of dig through more comprehensively their decisions and their records at oral argument and those sorts of things. But there will be sort of a question, I think, do Democrats want someone who they know is a progressive who's going to sort of fight that fight and carry that torch, even if they're writing a lot of dissents for decades? Uh, or do they want someone who's going to maybe try to play ball with the court's conservative majority, maybe concede kind of a lot, but in doing that, you know, try to work with them and maybe pull things back here or there. That's a, that's a decision that, that the White House is just going to have to make. Yeah. Sam Baker, senior editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The tension with Russia continues as fears mount that they could invade Ukraine. But what are all the motivations behind it? Vladimir Putin wants guarantees that NATO will not expand further eastward. For the U.S., China seems to be a bigger threat, but we're bound to help because of our involvement with NATO. For more on all this, we'll speak to Jonathan Geyer, senior foreign policy writer at Vox. And we start off by talking about what the underlying motivations are. This is a great question, and it's something I've been thinking about because there's a lot of baseline assumptions we've been making. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization has 30 members, obviously it's the United States and the UK and France. And this is this Cold War entity. And what I've been wondering is, you know, why do we depend on NATO? What is the basis of this conflict with Russia? And I want to put it out there first, of course, that Vladimir Putin, this is a revanchist guy. He's obviously reportedly poisoned his enemies. He's funding separatists. He's a violent and very difficult world leader to contend with. But I did wonder to what extent U.S. politics and U.S. policy play into this conflict. So I've been going back to the early 90s in the Clinton administration where the Berlin Wall falls, the Cold War ends, Soviet Russia, which is the reason we had NATO, was to push back against uh, Soviet Russia, the USSR, no longer exists. And it's this really fascinating under discussed history that I really think informs what's happening now because 
why do we need to keep adding countries to NATO? Uh, why would Ukraine, this country that obviously has historic and cultural ties to Russia, now a democracy, obviously it's under threat from Russia. And there are real concerns with these tens of thousands or more than 100,000 Russian troops at its border. But, you know, speaking to diplomats who've served in the Clinton and the Bush administrations, I learned that, you know, none of this was ever a done deal at the end of the Cold War. And I'm thinking a lot how this history of how the U.S. engages with the entire world in Europe and with Russia has really been cornered in or boxed in by some of these moments. And, and, and really, Biden has an opportunity, I think, as president to lead and make some choices that hopefully are not going to just antagonize and irritate that relationship with Russia. Yeah, as you mentioned in the article, the U.S. kind of chose NATO as the mechanism for you know, engaging with uh, Europe and, and other countries out there. And I guess to some point, right, to boil it down really simplistically, if you're a member of NATO, right, and you attack one country, then you kind of basically attack everybody. And and so this is kind of, I guess, a worry for Russia, right? If Ukraine becomes part of this group, uh, you know, anything that happens there, you're going to incur the wrath of all the other nations. Totally. And, and this is really the sacrosanct thing of NATO, this Article 5, that if you attack a country, you attack all 30 of them, including the U.S., the major nuclear power. And by the way, Russia is also a nuclear power, so nobody wants a conflict. But what I think is so interesting here is that Ukraine is never going to join NATO in its current form. There's all these political and economic conditions to join NATO. All 30 countries have to agree. And Ukraine, for better or worse, has a history and a contemporary scene of a lot of corruption and political dealings and economic and political issues that would need to be addressed. So it's really this weird mood point that Ukraine is never in the current moment going to join NATO. But we have the Secretary of State yesterday, Tony Blinken, saying we have to leave this open door policy, this open door to Ukraine joining NATO. But really, it puts everybody in this very untenable position. This is probably the question that we can answer, right? So why is this, is Ukraine at the center of this? If it's not going to join NATO, I guess, uh, you know, Putin doesn't want NATO to keep expanding that way, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Is it just kind of like an unspoken agreement that everybody's afraid of? Well, I think, you know, no one knows what Putin really thinks and what this is really about. And, you know, conservatives right now are saying Joe Biden looks weak because he withdrew United States troops from Afghanistan. I think that perspective is wrong. Other people are saying, you know, there isn't a Biden doctrine yet. We don't know. He's maybe his whole career tracks with the end of the Cold War, but a lot of those Cold War assumptions of war with Russia, and maybe he's internalized those too much. But this is an administration that is a year in. It's still getting its footing. And this is a pretty major crisis that they're dealing with. And it's really yet to be seen. But what we do know is that if you listen to folks in Washington, China is the biggest concern. Everyone is worried about the competition with China, about tech, about all the potential military and otherwise concerns. And this Ukraine crisis and a potential conflict with Vladimir Putin is a major distraction for the Biden administration. Right. And it's taking away all of their oxygen and energy to focus on what are real deep American interests in the 21st century. Yeah, as you said, it it's a complicated issue. Uh, we do have some troops on a, a state of readiness in case something happens. Uh, but I guess this is going to be happening through kind of the NATO lens. 
and uh, it's just a complicated thing where you know everybody's kind of on pins and needles for something to drop and unfortunately you know in case something happens so something just to tune into and uh, a deeply complicated thing jonathan geyer senior foreign policy writer at vox thank you very much for joining us really appreciate it In an effort to keep overdoses at a minimum and provide people safe spaces to use drugs without having to be on a street corner, New York has opened two safe consumption locations where people can use drugs with supervision. If something goes wrong, train workers can step in with oxygen or other life-saving measures. There is some opposition to these centers, but these sites could already be on their way to other places like Rhode Island and California. For more on all this, we'll speak to Meryl Cornfield, reporter at The Washington Post. So this is the first sanctioned version of this in the country. We know that it's existed unsanctioned in other parts of the country. And what that means is that um, there's an agreement that law enforcement prosecutors in New York City are not going to go after the people using this site. And we know that this is also going to appear elsewhere. Rhode Island already passed a law saying they're moving forward with their site. California lawmakers and mayors have been talking about this. So um, this is something we're going to see elsewhere. Um, and, and, you know, we're getting our first peek at what it actually looks like in New York City now. So how does this work and what does this look like? In, in your article, you, you detail the story of a man who's addicted to heroin. He went to the site so he can use before he had a job interview later that day, which is <laughs> pretty crazy, I guess. He began to nod off. He went a little pale. Workers sprang into action. They gave him oxygen and averted what could have been a pretty bad situation with an overdose. So what does this look like? People, just anybody can just walk in and say, hey, you know, I need to use one of the rooms. And then they leave and they're high or, you know, do they help them? Do they say they, they got to stay there until it wears off? How does that work? Um, they do stay there to monitor them. There's a period of time that they keep them in this kind of clinical environment. It's not rooms, but rather pods where um, you know, they have these people facing mirrors and a, a metal desk where they have their paraphernalia and drugs um, on the counter that they can use. Um, and they, they bring their own illegal drugs. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned in the article that uh, it does have kind of a clinical type setting, or at least it seems like there's needles of different size and cotton gauze, elastic tourniquets. They have to bring their own drugs, obviously. And it's just a, a place to go to keep them off the street or having to do it on a corner or in front of others. And people that have gone in to use it at least have, have said that it helps. It, it, they feel good about going there. Yeah, that was the sense I got from people. Um, and, and the organizers also pointed to the paperwork that they do on intake when people come in to use the site. Um, they fill out a form that says, you know, where would they be doing drugs if not for that location? And the majority of them are saying they would do it by themselves. Um, they'd probably do it like in a public place if they couldn't do it at home. And that means that, you know, especially in this time of the pandemic, when we've seen an unprecedented number of overdoses that some experts have attributed to the isolation of the pandemic in itself, you know, that, that there's a now this communal space for the first time that we're seeing what that could mean for um, overdoses and the other aspects that go into that. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, some opposition to to things like this. A lot of it has to be a question of resources. You know, should we put time and effort, money into other things like treatment programs? People, I guess, residents, local residents say they might not want to invite the type of people 
that use drugs, you know, into their local neighborhoods, things like that. You know, what are the, what do people that are opposed to this stuff say? Yeah, so this is, you know, because it's the first sanctioned site, we've never really tested to see what this looks like in practice. Um, will people who use this site just use it um, and, and then they won't be using drugs outside of the site? Probably not because they're um, probably active drug users um, if they're at that point. And, you know, that could mean that people aren't getting treatment and are, and are continuing to use drugs, which has obvious public health consequences. And then the other aspect of it, as, as you had mentioned, are neighbors and people who live in these areas. In this case, it's East Harlem was the site that I went to, and there's a predominantly black community there who raised these questions about the oversaturation of drug treatments clinics in their neighborhood when drug use is happening across New York City, across the country, and you know to be the first kind of guinea pigs with something like this, um, you know, makes those residents fear fear for crime in the area um, and you know risks that come with that. Is there an attempt to give people that come in and use their literature on treatment programs or anything like that? Do they just let them leave at the end of, you know, for lack of a better term, of a session? Or do they try to provide them with with some type of other options? Um, Organizers at this site are adamant that they are providing as much um, information as people um, will take about treatment. Uh, They said that some of the volunteers at of that their site are in treatment themselves and can talk about those experiences with users. It gives them a person to see what their experience has been like and get to know that. Um, and as soon as they, you know, bring up the question of treatment, which has come up after these dozens of overdoses they've reversed, um, they immediately have literature to give to that person and, and uh, social workers upstairs that can walk them through what their options are. Now, uh, you made mention in the article about how uh, the federal government is not necessarily behind these. Obviously, these are the very first facilities that we're seeing for this. This is in New York we're talking about. But there was, uh, I guess, the the Trump administration had tried to stamp out any type of these facilities. The Biden administration has taken kind of a a step back approach. They're not actively trying to close anything. But but how does that fare with what New York's doing? Um, Organizers. When I asked them about, you know, the silence, we've, we haven't heard from Biden's DOJ about um, their position. Um, and we don't really, um, at least the experts I've talked to, don't anticipate that um, there will be any immediate announcement from the Biden administration about a take on supervised consumption sites. Um, for now, the organizers are cautious, but they felt optimistic, especially by um, the recent push. Um, from district attorneys that supported their efforts, four out of the five in the city have backed them. So um, they they feel like they are in um, you know precarious position. Obviously, if the administration changes, um, but that they they were going to continue doing this as long as they could. Merrill Cornfield, reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.